my wife Janelle and I were married in two stages because the pastor who married us did not have an officiant's license. We had another marriage officiant do the legal part a day before our big ceremony, right? And so the first ceremony was actually very light and casual. I remember we stopped for a moment decorating the church and we went off to the side and we held hands and just exchanged some of these vows and we were both wearing our casual clothes and Janelle had her shades on top of her head and then a couple of our friends went off to sign the papers with us and it was very casual. But the next day was very serious and, and solemn, though, though joyful. We were conscious, of course, that we were making a covenant before God there in front of many witnesses to love and serve each other for the rest of our lives. And that's the sort of solemn ceremony that we have here in Joshua chapter 24. It's a, a renewal of the covenant that God made with his people Israel. They were again committing themselves to obey the law of Moses. All the people of Israel gathered. Joshua, something like a marriage officiant here, leading them in this ceremony. And there are witnesses here as this covenant is ratified. I want to look here at this solemn assembly under four headings and really the main subject of this chapter, the main term, the main word we see repeated throughout this chapter is serve. This is a call to serve the Lord. So we'll look at four points here under that main theme of service. Number one is the Lord's gracious providence to the servants of idols. We see this in verses one to three. As Joshua begins this ceremony, he speaks the word of God to the people and he tells all the tribes of Israel and their leaders an overview of redemptive history, of the history of God's providence in their lives, that they were brought from service to idols in the land beyond the river. And then God brought them into relationship with him and led them the whole way. It's his gracious providence to the servants of idols. We'll look at this here. In verse 2 to 3, Joshua begins by noting that their ancestors were idolaters. He says here, and Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. So he talks about Terah, Abraham, and Nahor who served other gods beyond the Euphrates. Before Abraham was called out of Haran and even before that when he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, these places north and east of Israel, Abraham was an idolater. Sometimes we might assume that this great father of the faith was never an idolater. He always worshipped the true God, but that was not the case. The religion of Ur, the Sumerian religion, had a pantheon of some 3,600 gods. It was absolutely chock full of idolatry. They worshipped gods of the air, gods of fertility, gods of war, gods of you name it, they got it, right? A couple 
times more in this passage, Joshua mentions the gods their fathers served beyond the river, verse 14 and 15. But in verse 3, the Lord says that he took Abraham from beyond the river. God took Abraham out of that land and its idolatry to Canaan in order to save him and do marvelous things through him and his family. We all, like Abraham, need to be saved out of our own culture, out of our natural and sometimes ancestral idolatry to serve the true and living God. We see his gracious providence here to idolaters. And then as Joshua continues in verses 3 and 4, he notes the children that he gave to Abraham. He made his offspring many, it says. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. As we'll see, Joshua is giving the Israelites a whole history, highlighting God's providence, God's grace, God's kindness. And here he notes one of his gracious gifts to them was these children. And this was made especially clear by the fact that Sarah, Abraham's wife, could not conceive. But then she did when she was 90 years old, miraculously. And Rebekah was also barren. But Isaac prayed and God gave her twins. It's a good reminder here for us that all of our children are a gift from the Lord. Whatever children we have, they are from God's own hand. He has the power to open or close the womb. And more than that, in redemptive history, God was working through these specific children and their families to eventually bring forth the Christ, that one offspring of Abraham through whom the world was blessed. He continues here in verses seven, 4 to 7 by reminding them of the exodus from Egypt. He says here, and, I, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And you, your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. <clears throat> so God gave Esau the hill country of Seir, southeast of Canaan. But then he brought Jacob's family down into Egypt. And even there, even though they were in slavery, God remembered them. God loved them. And he saved them out of Egypt. He brought them out. God delivered them at the Red Sea. They, they saw what he did. His mighty hand and outstretched arm working wonders for them. As Christians too, we know that, that even though God may have us as sojourners in a foreign land now like the Israelites were, even in suffering, he has not forgotten us. And we have been redeemed from slavery to sin by the work of Christ. And we will be delivered when Jesus returns again to judge the world. Moving on, Joshua says here, he speaks of the, the wilderness. He says, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Verse 7. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness after they were delivered from Egypt. This would remind them of their sin which caused their wandering, but also of God's provision as they did. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water from the rock. 
He gave them healing from the bites of fiery serpents, just as this world sometimes seems to be a wilderness for us, full of temptations and trials. But God provides us with everything that we need. And then in verses 8 to 10, he speaks of the final stages of the wandering. God brought and gave and destroyed and delivered. You see these verbs here. They came to the region east of the Jordan, and God fought for them against Sihon and Og, and they defeated the Amorites and Moabites. The two and a half tribes possessed that land. And though Balak hired Balaam, the false prophet, to curse them, God turned it so that he could only bless them. It's a reminder for us as well that wherever we have victory, God has given it. Whatever we possess is God's gift. And God protects us from spiritual evil and even brings good out of things that are meant for evil against us. Lastly, here in verses 11 to 13, God reminds them of the conquest of Canaan, which we saw earlier in this book. He says, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. They had gone over the Jordan by a great miracle. As we saw in Joshua 3 and 4, they came to Jericho and conquered it by faith in God's power. They fought against all these people, and it was always God who gave them into their hand. Verse 12 says that he even sent the hornet before them, which drove them out. Scholars debate over this statement. It could refer to actual Hornets, maybe God sent some kind of killer bees, I I don't know. People were driven out before them. But it could refer metaphorically to the fear and anxiety that God put in the Canaanites, which we read about earlier in the book, or, or even to campaigns of Egyptians that weakened the Canaanites before Israel's time. But whatever it means here, God was providentially using means other than the Israelites to drive their enemies out. He notes here he drove out the two kings of the Amorites, probably referring to the two heads of the coalitions of kings we saw in the north and the south. And so he reminds them, it was not by your sword or by your bow. They won these victories because God was with them and fought for them, as we've seen over and over. In verse 13, the Lord emphasizes That the whole land, with its cities and produce, was a pure, free gift of God. They were reaping what they did not sow. They inherited someone else's land, cities built by others, food from vineyards and orchards they did not plant. They could not take any credit for what they received. They couldn't pat themselves on the back. They couldn't boast. Likewise, whatever blessings we have, physical and spiritual, are ultimately free gifts of God. And our salvation is completely the work of Christ and God's free gracious gifts so that no one can boast and God would get all the glory and praise. As someone has said, 
The only thing we contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So reviewing their redemptive history here should have filled Israel with a sense of unworthiness and yet gratitude to the God who did everything for them and led them the whole way. Everything was by his grace and power. It was his free gift to them. And we also can look back at the whole history of redemption and we see much more than they did. And we can be even much more grateful for the work God did through all history to bring redemption to the world. You can look at your own life as well and how the Lord himself, no credit to yourself, has given you every physical and spiritual blessing that you own. He brought you out of sin and idolatry. He redeemed you by his grace alone through faith alone. He has given you spouses and children and a land and houses and food. He has guarded you and given you every victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. Our history is a history full of God's gracious hand. That's what Joshua wants us to see here. And we ought to review it often and learn to look at life through that lens that everything comes from him. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights, as James 1 says. Or as Jacob recognized in Genesis 32:10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. Everything we have is a gracious gift from God's hand. All things are from him and through him and to him. And so Joshua reviews their history here, but he reviews it not just for its sake alone, but he reviews it in order to give them a motivation for what he's going to say next, which here is my second point, a call and commitment to serve the Lord alone. This is what we see in verses 14 to 18, a call and commitment to serve the Lord alone. There's a positive and negative call here and a choice to be made. The positive call we see here, the first part of verse 14, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. After reviewing this history, he calls them to service to the God who has delivered them and been with them at every step of the way. This is much like Paul in Romans 12.1. After 11 chapters of surveying this grand salvation and God's purpose for the entire world, Paul says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to fear the Lord and serve him because of the great work that he has done because of all that he has done and all that he is to us and for us. We are to fear the Lord, as Joshua says, which means to live before him with an affectionate reverence. It's not a slavish fear, but an awe of God and reverence for God that leads us to obey him, knowing his greatness and his graciousness. We are to serve him, Joshua says, in sincerity and faithfulness which could be translated here, sincerity and truth. And it's much like what Jesus says in John 4. You must worship God in spirit and truth. 
That is from your own heart, genuinely, sincerely. Our worship and service has to be sincere and true from a genuine desire and love for God. Joshua does not want to create any hypocrites. True faith is not acting. It's not getting our costumes on for a few hours and running through some lines. True faith is sincere and true. It's not just an hour a week, but it's 24-7. And so out of gratitude for God's grace toward us, we're called to fear Him and serve Him with a true heart. But there's a negative call here as well, something to do away with, something to cast off. Joshua says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Later on, he will say again to them in verse 23, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. In order to serve God, we must turn away from idols. As we spoke of last week, there are surface idols and root idols. But when we follow Christ, we must deny ourselves. We must take up a cross that crucifies us to the world and its desires. There's a service to put on and a service to put off. Put on the new self. Put off the old self with its desires and practices like Gideon we have to pull down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole like the Ephesians we need to burn our magic books though they were precious to us and turn to the Christ who has true spiritual authority and power so Joshua says here there's a there's a choice to make there's a choice verse 15 and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a choice involved here. If if they turn away from the one true God, then they have a choice to make between all these other gods. Just as Moses in Deuteronomy 30 put a choice before the people. And he said, the choice between life and death is before you this day. Joshua puts the same thing in front of Israel. There's always the choice between the path of life, following after the true God, the path of death, following after idols. He says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. Unfortunately, in many eyes, Serving Christ is worthless and detestable since Satan and their own sin has blinded them. And this this was the case with all of us when we were in darkness. We didn't see the glory of Christ. And so we didn't want to serve him. It was something evil in our eyes. But this is what God does when he saves someone. He makes it good in our eyes to serve the Lord. There's a song that John Newton wrote, the author of Amazing grace called how sweet and awful is the place. And he pictures salvation as this great banquet as Jesus does in his parable. That, that everyone is invited to come and join in this feast and, and taste of the Lord's goodness. And John Newton reflecting on this says, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? 
when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. There are some who make that wretched choice to turn away from the God of all grace, to turn away from this feast of joy in our salvation. And they turn to other gods, other idols. And when you do that, there's, there's a choice between which idols you will serve. Joshua tells them, path A over here is the gods of Ur. Path B is the gods of Canaan. Take your pick between these two equally terrible options. You know, the gods of tradition or the gods of progressivism. I like how Dale Ralph David puts this here. The conservatives among them may have voted for the Mesopotamian gods of the past that their ancestors worshipped. The liberals among them may have been fond of entering into dialogue and worship with the gods of the Amorites they dwelt among at present. But the point is, you can take your pick from any number of false gods when you turn away from the true God. And these will all put you to shame in the end. Go ahead and worship the God of self-fulfillment, the God of false security, the gods of money, sex, or power. See how that works out for you. As Elijah said on Mount Carmel, though, there's a choice. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Joshua puts the choice before them. But as for Joshua, his mind was already made up. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How often, I wonder, does this verse hang on a nice wooden plaque in the entryway of a house where hypocrisy abounds? These words are often taken because it's a beautiful verse. But here they come from the lips of a truly genuine servant of God and we ought to take them up in the same way to truly follow the Lord and resolve that as far as it depends upon us that our whole household everyone we have influence upon would also serve the true God Joshua had this resolve there was no turning back in his mind Henry says those that are bound for heaven must be willing to swim against the stream and must not do as the most do, but as the best do. Joshua knew that many may depart from the Lord, but as for him, he would serve the Lord. Men, do you have that kind of resolve? Specifically to us as heads of our households, we need to understand that we are in many ways the thermostat of the house. We decide the spiritual temperature in our household. You can't make your wife and children serve the Lord when you are not serving the Lord yourself. You can't expect your wife or your children to make the resolution for you. You can't honor God outside the home, but then dishonor him inside the home. You must manage your household well. But it's the job of us to serve the Lord in all areas of life. And do everything in our power to raise children that serve him. Yes, we know that salvation belongs to the Lord. God ultimately chooses who he will save. And many hear the word, but still turn away from it. 
But as far as it depends upon us, God may use our instruction and discipline to bring up children who truly love Jesus Christ. God often uses the prayers and example and teaching of a righteous man in his household for the salvation of his household. And we're to sow seed in our children, hoping in God to bring a harvest. Men, you set an example by your godliness. And then you must also take time to actually teach your family about the Lord. This is why family worship is such a tried and true practice in the home. In the morning before you go to work or after supper at the dinner table or wherever and however, get your kids listening to the Bible and talking about the Bible and singing songs in joyful praise to the Lord. Talk to your wives about spiritual things. Spend time with her speaking of what the Lord is doing in your lives, of what you're reading in Scripture, praying together. Pray for your children and show them tangible Christ-likeness in the home. And I know for some of you, your, your ladies in homes where your husbands are not yet believers, as you pray for their salvation and show them Christ, by your inner tranquility, gentleness, and respect, you also can teach your children and pray for, for their souls. You're the sanctifying influence in that home, like Lois and Eunice were for Timothy. And children, children, listen to me, it's never, it's never, you're never too young to start serving the Lord. If you can hear the gospel message and respond to it, you can serve Jesus Christ in your own way. So to this call, Joshua makes the resolution that he himself and his house will serve the Lord. And the people reply to what Joshua has said here, almost in horror in verse 16. It says, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They're shocked at, at the idea that they would turn from this true God to idols. So their choice seems to be made up as well. And what is their reasoning here? Why would they not turn away from the true God? Well, it was the Lord who redeemed them and led them to this point, as Joshua just recalled. And he is their God. They say, verse 17, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. This passage is almost like when all those disciples leave Jesus in John 6, and Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, Well, are you going to leave me now as well? Do you want to go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Once God does capture us by His grace, we are debtors to Him and we cannot leave Him. But after these commitments are voiced here, Joshua's commitment, Israel's commitment to follow the Lord, to serve Him, Joshua gives an alarming and difficult statement about serving the Lord. We see an alarming statement. 
about serving the Lord here in verse 19 and following. It says, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, this is quite something, isn't it? Joshua calls the people to serve the Lord. He he tells them, serve the Lord in in fear, in, in sincerity and truth. And then he tells them they can't serve the Lord. They are not able to serve the Lord. And God is holy. God is jealous. And he won't forgive their sins. And so what is going on here? Joshua, is he just skeptical of them? He he thinks that they're lying. Is he just a grumpy old man at this point? I mean, he is about 110 years old. Maybe he's seen enough unfaithfulness in his life. And and he says, no, you're you're really not going to serve the Lord. Or is he simply trying to make a point about the severity of following the Lord and committing to him? There may be something to that. Jesus, after all, when people pledged commitment to him, would often deter them initially to test their mettle. Matthew 8, 19 to 20, it says, And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He tried to deter people from following him. Joshua and Jesus are certainly not good evangelists by modern standards, are they? You're supposed to do whatever you possibly can to make followers of Jesus Christ, right? We have specialized altar calls, emotional services, dumbed down gospel messages to the point where anyone wants a slice of this. I'll I'll take Jesus. He seems great. But that's not what the prophets and not what Jesus did. They made people count the cost. They said, if you put your hand to the plow and then look back, you're not worthy of me. That's the truth. We have to reiterate that. That could be part of what Joshua is doing here. Getting them to see the seriousness, the severity of committing to such a holy God. But I think Joshua is doing more than that here. To really understand what's happening in this passage We have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, because at the end of Deuteronomy, we have a scene exactly like this one. Moses put the choice before Israel of serving God versus idols, the choice of life and death. He put this law covenant before them, and he says, essentially, obey this and you'll live blessed. Disobey this and you will die accursed. And in chapter 31, Verse 16, after all of that, the Lord tells Moses that the people would turn away from him to idols after they came into the land of Canaan. God prophesied to him. He told him what was going to happen, that 
the people, when they settled in the land, as they have in the book of Joshua, they would quickly turn aside from the Lord. And God would be forced to judge them and bring the curses of the covenant upon them. And so God gives Moses a song to pass down as a witness against them, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 32. And in that same chapter, Joshua was commissioned in Deuteronomy 31. He was there with Moses as all of that was going on. He had heard what the Lord told Moses, that the people would turn away once they got into their own land. So Joshua was there the whole time, soaking all of this in, just before Moses died. And now Joshua is at the end of his life. He's seen the people inherit the land of Canaan. And at this point, it's only a matter of time till the Lord's word would come true. These people would turn away from God. So here's the thing. God had told him beforehand what they would do. So Joshua knew. Joshua knew they would turn away from God. They knew they would not serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. In time, they would prove themselves unable to keep the covenant that they were making that very day. They would serve other gods, and God ultimately would remove his mercy from them and consume them and pour out upon them all the curses of the covenant that he made with them. God would show himself to be a holy and jealous God. Holy, that he's transcendent and pure. He cannot stand to look at evil. Jealous, so that if his people go after other lovers, he would be rightly jealous at them and angry towards them. The covenant they were entering into, which required complete obedience, would inevitably be broken. Joshua knows this. God would be forced to bring upon them the judgments. He would turn and do them harm and consume them after having done them so much good. Still, like the people did when Moses gave the covenant, they pledged their obedience anyway. They said they would serve the Lord. And they were witnesses against themselves. And Joshua sets up even another witness, this stone by the terebinth tree, to witness against them. It says in verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Now, why would this happen? Why would God command obedience like this, knowing full well that the people would disobey and turn from him? Why would Joshua say, serve the Lord in one breath, knowing that at least at some point this people would turn from serving the Lord to serve idols? This falls under the bigger question of why the law? Why the Old Covenant? Why the Old Testament? 
to begin with. Why did God tell the people that they must obey him in the law of Moses, knowing that they would disobey? Or we could go back even further. Why did God create us? Why did God create Adam and Eve, give them a command, knowing that they would fall into sin and bring this whole world under sin, death, and condemnation? Paul answers this question in Galatians 3.19. He says, why then the law? Why this high standard of obedience that we could never truly live up to? It was added because of transgressions, he says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Joshua is really speaking the language of the law here, of the old covenant, which is meant to both tell us what God requires us to do, but also show us that we can't do it and we have not done it because we're sinners. Serve the Lord, but you are not able to serve the Lord because he's holy. If we had a God who was unjust and unholy like us, we might be able to meet his standard. But we have a God who is holy, holy, holy. A jealous God who is filled with indignation when he sees his people turning to other gods. When we have a God who is utterly transcendent and pure, we cannot serve this God under an agreement of total obedience. We've proven ourselves too fickle, too sinful, too driven toward idols. But when we see our inability, we are forced to look for another solution. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've served other gods. I know I can't follow God perfectly. I know I deserve his wrath. I ought to be consumed. God is a jealous God. So so where, where do I turn? Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. It forces us to look to Jesus Christ and his cross as our only way of salvation, to look to the work that God has done in Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God, that we would be enabled to be forgiven and also to serve the Lord from a true heart. God has done in Christ what you are not able to do. You are not able to serve God under the terms of the old covenant. You cannot offer to God perfect obedience that earns you life. But Christ can. And Christ did. And now you can serve the Lord under the terms of the new covenant. The law of the spirit of life. Paul says this in Romans 8 verses 1 to 2. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Friend, if you have come to Christ in sincerity, simply clinging to his grace, believing upon him, he washes you clean from your sin. He has paid for your sin at the cross, satisfying God's holiness, God's jealousy, God's justice by dying under the judgment that you deserve. And so God forgives you all your many sins and your unfaithfulness. And then he grants you the power of his spirit so that you can fear God and serve him in sincerity and truth under the terms of a new covenant, which is full of grace. Friend, God forgives you and trains you by his grace so that you may in truth serve our triune God. Yes, as Joshua says, we are not able. We are not able in and of ourselves to serve this holy God. That is why Christ our Lord came to serve us and die for our sake upon the cross. And it would appear that Moses and Joshua's prophecy about the people turning away from the Lord was actually delayed for a time. Because this current generation did indeed serve the Lord by his grace. Point four here is one generation's faithfulness to serve the Lord. Verses 29 to 33 wrap up the book of Joshua. We read of three servants of God who were buried in Canaan at that time. Joshua, Joseph, and Eliezer, the high priest. And they all were buried there in the middle of Canaan put to rest in that promised land. As Moses and Aaron, the prophet and high priest of the old covenant, died outside Canaan, now Joshua, the prophet, and Eliezer, the high priest, died inside Canaan. And Joseph is an interesting one here. He died, of course, way before the exodus in Egypt, but his bones were preserved and brought here at his own direction. By faith, he made mention of the exodus and gave direction Concerning his bones, as Hebrews 11 says, he was so convinced of God's promise to Abraham that he would bring them out of Egypt and into Canaan that he wanted his bones brought to Canaan when it happened. And now he is laid to rest there at Shechem, the very place where Abraham first stopped and worshipped the Lord in the land of Canaan and received God's promise of the land. Funny enough, it was right beside this oak or terebinth tree, which is now the solemn holy place where God's people made a covenant. And so these three deaths and burials remind us of God's faithfulness to his promises and how he truly brought the people into the land, as he said, which has been a major theme of this book. But nestled within those accounts is verse 31 which says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Indeed, this generation did actually serve the Lord. They committed to serving God as Joshua commanded them, and they did so. We know that afterwards, Judges 2, 6-10 tells us that 
after this generation, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. But this generation truly served God. Perhaps this is meant to tell us that it is under, only under Joshua that we can be saved and serve the Lord. We know that Joshua's name is the same name as Jesus. Yehoshua, Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus. Only a Joshua could bring the people into the land and give them rest. Only under a Joshua could they serve the Lord. Moses could not do this, but Joshua could. So the law cannot bring us salvation and eternal life and rest, but a Joshua can. Our greater Joshua, Jesus, the Christ, can bring us in and give us eternal rest and eternal life. And indeed, the rest that this Joshua gave was not enough. Jesus brings a greater rest, rest from our works, rest from death, eternal life in Sabbath rest in God's presence. Friends, the book of Joshua, I hope you've seen from beginning to end, has pointed us to faith in Jesus Christ, the true Joshua, the only one through whom we can conquer, but through him we are more than conquerors. So may we and our children and grandchildren know Christ and his work so that we might serve the Lord and bring him glory. But we all do need to make this choice, don't we? Who are you going to serve? Serve the Lord, Coramdale. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this earnest call, Lord, to our hearts today. And you have said, seek my face. And our hearts say to you, Lord, your face will we seek. Lord, you've said to us, serve you. We say we will serve the Lord by your grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you've done what we could never do by sending your son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, redeeming us from the curse of the law and also giving us your spirit so that we might truly walk in your ways and fear you and serve you in sincerity from our hearts. God, we pray that you would continue this work in us and give us grace this day and this week to serve you. In Jesus' name.